we continue our study through the book of Romans, we are in chapter 4, and um, as we look at this, and again, it's so exciting to be in this book here on the eve of what we call Reformation Day, because as we mentioned over 500 years ago on that day, um, October 31st, Martin Luther nailed his 95 Theses to the wall of the Wittenberg Church, and he obviously is the inspiration, Paul, is that inspiration that caused Martin Luther to see this great truth. And these four verses that we're going to look at, very simply, remind us that God justifies all people by faith alone, apart from any rites or rituals on our part. Let's hear the word of the Lord this morning. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Let us look to this father in heaven for prayer. Almighty God, through the goodness of your providence and the grace of your spirit, we are here today united in the body of Christ, your church. Please now give us ears to hear your word and faith to perseveringly fight against all the temptations of this world, whatever new troubles may daily arise. Teach us to raise up our eyes and our minds and our thoughts to your great power by which you give life to the dead and call into existence the things that do not exist. And now we pray, please anoint with your spirit our brother and pastor to preach faithfully the words which you caused to be written and preserved for our life and godliness. Give grace, give Greg the grace and the anointing of your spirit, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So most of you probably weren't thinking on the way to church today uh, whether somebody needed to be circumcised uh, to be saved. I don't think you were, and um, uh, we don't have a very big uh, Jewish population uh, in our church, but uh, this does apply to us. I know it's easy, especially as I mentioned, this, this book of Romans is the greatest treatise on the gospel in all of the Bible, and, and Paul just goes to great lengths to, to explain the gospel. Uh, but, he, but sometimes as he's in the middle of uh, the long dissertations, our eyes can kind of glass over and we're like, what? Um, and, and I want to kind of bring this to us today and, and apply it because it does apply to us. Now, let me just give you this. Many of us grew up in a home that may have emphasized 
um, such things as uh, keeping certain religious rites like being baptized, right, or First Communion, or saying certain prayers, or going to confession, and on and on it could go, right? So, so as we look at that, in Paul's day, many believed that someone had to be circumcised, much like many have grown up thinking or hearing or in their subconscious somewhere thinking that these rites, these, reli- these religious rites and rituals somehow are needed for us to be declared righteous before a holy God. So, of course, like we say, to put that in context now with what we're reading in Paul's day, that was very much something that the early church was battling. Even Gentiles had to come into this little bit of a debate because there were those who followed Paul around when he would found the church and and preach the gospel, and he would then move on. Well, some people would follow him called Judaizers, and these guys would try to teach the, the people, wait a minute, you Gentiles, you can't just trust Jesus by faith alone, you also have to be circumcised and and keep the law of Moses in order to be saved as well. So they were adding a little bit there. We see this in Acts chapter 15, especially just so blatantly. Uh, It says this, verse one, Paul, uh, but, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So again, in the book of Romans, which is, again, Paul's magnus opus, the Spirit led him to lay out one of the most comprehensive treaties of the gospel. And what we saw last week especially, Paul was adamant. He was adamant that no one is saved by keeping the law or doing any type of work. We are declared righteous by God by faith. There it is. Our faith, our faith in the promises of God, that's it. And God counts us righteous. So that's what we're seeing, right? And now Paul's anticipating the next question. When he lays that down and says, look, God justifies the ungodly by faith, apart from works. Well, the next question, and once those Jewish practitioners of the law finally got that in their mind, They're going to say, okay, Paul, we get it. God justifies by faith, but he only justifies those who've been circumcised by faith, right? (laughs) Just the Jewish people who are keeping the law of Moses. He justifies them and only them by faith. So in verse 9, Paul answers their question, their anticipated question, with a question by saying, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? So he's already hinting to his point here. It's for everybody. But notice where he goes to try to make his point here. He says, for we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Now that's the second time in in the last nine verses that Paul has used Genesis chapter 15. That's what he's quoting from there. We saw it back in Romans chapter 4 verse 3. Here it is. For what does the scripture say, Paul says? So he says, let's go back as he's establishing the fact that that we're saved by grace through faith alone and not of any merit of our own, he he took them back in verse 3. He said, For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So why does Paul do this? Why again, now in chapter 4, verse 9, does he go back to, to Genesis chapter 15 specifically and drum this into their heads again that, of which God told Abraham. There's two reasons, I think. 
Now, number one is that we are so thick-headed when it comes to understanding that we are saved by grace alone and nothing of ourselves, that we have no part in our salvation whatsoever. We do not contribute to the initial grace that saves us, and we do not sustain that grace by continued efforts on our part. There is nothing that we can do to gain salvation or keep our salvation by any work that we do in ourselves. There's no righteousness that we add to the equation. So Paul has to continue to, to, to drum that part, right, into our brains. And, and folks, many of the world's religions, even the top Christian, quote, denominations and religions, stubbornly teach what Paul plainly denies. We, we continue to kind of teach this thing that somehow we have a part in our salvation. And it just blows people's minds deep down in their flesh to think that we don't. To think that it's somehow not up to us to be good or keep a rule or do some religious rituals. And we, especially here in, in our town, live in, in, a, in a place that many of us grew up with that. Um, again, we, we lovingly refer to the West Side as Little Rome. I do. It's a loving thing because it's just the truth, right? Um, Catholicism is strong here. And, and, and we have to remind ourselves some of the foundation of that. What, what is the foundation of this? Why, why is it so ingrained, this idea of a works-based or an earning or contributing with God in our salvation? What, 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 what is the foundation? So when you think about this, in response to the Protestant Reformation, which we've been talking about, um, the, the Catholic Church had a council called Trent, and they laid down some pretty strong edicts against this proposition that Paul so eloquently lays out here and that Martin Luther saw by the grace of God and he began to lay out and other reformers began to return to the word of God and God's word alone and say, no, we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, apart from any work of ourselves. And so these decrees that were given at the Council of Trent were also verified and reconfirmed in the 1960s at the Second Vatican uh, council. And they're still in effect today. So I think we need to understand some underlying tenets to the theology of the Roman Catholic Church. And, 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 and let me just quote three of these things. Session 6, Canon 9 says this. If anyone saith that by faith alone the impious is justified in such wise as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain the grace of justification, let him be anathema. Let him be accursed, is what that says. That's strong language. Session 6, Canon 12 says, If anyone saith that justifying faith is nothing else but confidence in the divine mercy which remits sins for Christ's sake. Now that's good preaching right there. That's what Paul's saying. That our confidence, our faith, is in the fact that we are remitted of our sin. We are forgiven of our sins based on the merit of Christ alone. For his sake, God saves us. That's what Paul's been saying. But they say, if anybody believes that, or that this confidence alone is that whereby we are justified, let him be anathema. They further go on to say in session 6, canon 20, uh, 24, if anyone saith that the justification received is not preserved 
and also increased before God through good works. But that the said works are merely the fruits and signs of justification obtained, but not a cause of the increase thereof, let him be anathema. I hope you followed me, the old English there. But I mean, they're saying if anybody thinks that your justification is not maintained or earned or maintained by your good works, but rather that those are an evidence of being saved, you know, the very thing that Paul and James, everybody talks about, the fact that the evidence of our faith is our good works, not the reverse. The good works do not bring us the saving faith, but the saving faith results in good works. They say the opposite here, and they say, let him be anathema. Whoever would believe that, let him be anathema. But again, I, I just want to reiterate and bring us back to what Paul is saying here. The authority that we stand up to these false teachings is the word of God. The fact that faith was counted as righteousness to Abraham. That's what Paul's saying. That's where he goes. He says, what does the scripture say? That's the answer, right? That's all we can say. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him as righteousness. That's what we can say. So that's one reason Paul is bringing them back continually. Look what the scripture says. See what the Bible says. God counted Abraham righteous, not by his good works, but because he believed the promise of God that he would send a Messiah to redeem us from our sins. And it was counted to him, just like it's counted to us, as righteousness. But the second reason I think Paul keeps going back to Genesis 15, as he explains this idea that, hey, we do not need to be circumcised. It has nothing to do with faith. We are justified by faith apart from circumcision. It, it's, they're not connected. Why is that? Well, I think he's going to remind them of the chronology and the condition of Abraham when he was justified, when he was counted righteous. Uh, I think it's important we understand this. So, so, so Paul says, hey, guys, look at this. You're asking about a person having to be circumcised in order to be justified by faith. Let's go back again to when God justified Abraham by faith. When was that? Now, any good Jewish student would know their Bible, Genesis especially, right? Genesis 15. That's when God was declaring Abraham righteous. So notice what Paul says in verse 10. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. So what you're seeing here, Abra Paul is reminding them, Abraham was circumcised, in, or I'm sorry, Abraham was justified by faith in Genesis chapter 15. He was not circumcised or had not received the sign of circumcision, uh, uh, circumcision until Genesis chapter 17. That's at least a 14-year gap, and many rabbinical estimates put it at 29 years. There's a long separation between the time that God counted Abraham as righteous simply because of his faith and the time that he received the sign of that covenant and that promise, which is circumcision. Now, that's important that we grab that. That's the foundation of what Paul is saying here, but that's foundational for us today. Here's the argument. If Abraham was made righteous by faith without circumcision, then what is circumcision? So this is what we're going to look at today. I mean, this is, we need this. Now, stay with me, folks. Stay with me. Uh, 
this is this is important. We need to know what we believe, why we believe it. Why why do I have such great faith that I am redeemed by God's grace? I've got to know what the Bible says about this. How do I know that I don't I'm not missing some ritual? How do I know I'm not performing some religious rite that I need in order to get to heaven? And that's these this, these are foundational for that, folks. We got to get this. So Paul is answering this fundamental question that many people have. If we're made righteous simply by faith in the work of Jesus Christ, then what are these other things we see in the church? For us, we would say, like baptism or communion. What are these things that are like circumcision of the Old Testament for, for the Jew? That's, that's, the, that's the, the connection. So let's notice verse 11. Paul answers some of these questions as he continues to build this out. He, Abraham, received the sign of circumcision. So again, if we put all these verses together, we see first Paul is saying, no, no, no. It was before. When did Abraham receive justification by faith? It was before he was circumcised. It was before. Then he goes on to say, then why, he's answering their question, well, then why was he ever circumcised? Well, he answers in verse 11. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that had by faith, that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So again, Paul's very careful with his language, making sure we understand the, the, the chronology of this. Paul was just, or Abraham was justified by his faith in the promise of God to send a Messiah. Then, almost 29 years later, he was to receive a sign of that. A seal. That's what Paul's saying. He received the sign of circumcision as a what? Seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. Now look, it goes on to say, the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be, content, or would be counted to them as well. So again, we're, we're establishing these, these truths. Number one, a person is saved by faith alone apart from circumcision. Number two, it goes for everybody, Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free, everybody. No matter who you are, you are justified in the sight of a holy God the same way, by faith in the finished work of Christ. But, I like this because what we're seeing here, there's not a, not a discounting though of circumcision or not a discounting of what we would today compare that to baptism. And we'll get to that in a moment. But he's saying what they are. They are not salvific. They're not, circumcision was not salvific, so he's, he's establishing that. And, and he's saying, what was it? It was a sign and seal of what was salvific. It pointed to that which was salvific. It sealed that which was salvific. Look at this, a sign. Think about that, a sign. Uh, uh, this, is, this is just... Basic logic, we got to get this one. A sign is not the thing it signifies. A sign is not the thing it signifies. If you're driving home from Dayton, I don't know why you're in Dayton. You might be in Dayton, though. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> and you're driving home from Dayton, and you see a sign on 75 that says, Cincinnati, 25 miles. That sign is not Cincinnati. You don't jump out and run around, oh, we're in Cincinnati. This is wonderful. No, the sign is pointing to the reality. But it's not the reality itself. Right? 
That is what Paul says circumcision is. It's a sign that points back to the reality that we are justified by faith alone. It's a seal. What does that mean? A seal is a confirmation of the reality or promise. It's a confirmation of that. Much like the wax seal of a king's ring on a letter when he would send something, he would put that, that wax seal and put his imprint there. It's confirmation of the reality. It, the, the, the seal itself is not that reality, but it talks about the reality that the king ordained or that he decreed. And that is what circumcision was for the people of God in the Old Testament. It was to point to and to confirm that we are justified by faith alone. And Paul makes very sure to make us understand that it had nothing to do with Abraham receiving that being counted righteous or receiving that righteousness. But it was simply a sign pointing back to that fact. Now we need this. We need this today, as I've mentioned, because we believe, some of us, some people even, I think, I, I'm telling you folks, I don't care how long you've been a believer, there's this thing in our flesh that has been so ingrained in us that creeps up to think that we somehow have a part in earning God's favor, that we've got to just still be good enough, that we've got to keep some kind of rule or regulation, something. We've got to read my Bible. If I don't, if I don't read my Bible every day, ooh, that's it, I lost it. If I don't pray every day, if I don't do something every day, I've got to keep that. So we need this message, folks, especially those who would hold to any of their upbringing that says, well, somehow my baptism or my weekly taking of communion somehow keeps me in Christ or gets me in a good place with God. So here it is. Just in our conclusion here. It's a short message today, but it just we have to hit it. Paul was so plain on this subject. A person is justified by faith alone. Baptism is a sign of that faith. So I'm, I'm bringing it into our context now. So, salvation is by faith alone. In what? The perfect work of Jesus Christ alone. Baptism is a sign and a seal of that faith and of that promise which does save us, which is Christ in the gospel. So we say, okay, Paul's already made that clear here. Yep, and he makes it clear a lot of places. And I, I'm going to show us one more place that I think we need to grab that can help us help people who struggle with this idea that somehow we have to add something else to faith because that's unequivocally what they're doing here to Paul. And Paul's combating this idea of somehow adding something to faith alone, somehow adding something to a trust in Christ alone. And so we have to... We have to be able to combat that scripturally because it's human nature. So here it is. Paul makes a distinction between faith in the promise and the sign of the promise in 1 Corinthians. A big one. Again, what am I saying? He makes a distinction between faith in the promise of God, and that's what saves us, folks. Uh, having faith in the promise of God that he will save all of those who believe on Christ by the perfection of Christ and his work for us. And there's a distinction between that and the sign of that promise. Now, let me, bear with me here. This is, this is put it all together. The faith that justifies is the faith in Jesus. Just like we said for Abraham, the faith that justified Abraham was not just a blind faith, okay, God, I believe in you somehow, you're out there. No, no, no. 
Abraham believed the promises that God had given him. Abraham understood that God had promised to send a Messiah through the seed of his people. And as that Messiah would, would redeem from sin. So Abraham believed the promise. And by that faith in the Messiah that was to come, he was counted righteous. Just like we look back to the Messiah by faith who came and we are counted righteous by that faith. Now, having said that, that work is called the gospel. The work that we believe in Christ is the gospel. We believe something about Christ. You don't just, you're not going to heaven because you believe in Jesus. The devil believes in Jesus. The devil believes in Jesus more than most professing Christians, I think, sometimes. So that's not it. To believe by faith in Christ for salvation means we believe on the work that he accomplished for us. That he died on a cross, was buried, and rose again. That is called the gospel. Paul actually gives us that definition in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, this is the gospel that I have preached to you, how that Jesus died according to the scripture, was buried according to the scriptures, and rose again according to the scriptures. Okay, that is the gospel. You say, okay, Greg, what's the big deal? Because he says in Romans 1.16 that that gospel, Christ's atoning work on the cross, is the power of God for salvation. There is no other. Romans 1.16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That's powerful. That's powerful. But listen. Here it is. I'm, I'm, this is all just foundational. Now we're getting into the, the big main argument of the separation between the gospel, faith in the gospel, faith in the, the work of Christ on the cross to redeem us from our sins, and the sign that points to that truth, the sign that's an outward symbol of an inward change that has come about by our faith in this work. And here it is. All right. So again, notice how careful Paul's going to be here to separate the gospel, the power that does save us by faith, from the sign and seal of it in 1 Corinthians 1, 14 through 17. Now, what's going on here in 1 Corinthians, Paul's talking about how the people, they're choosing favorites, right? Some say, I'm of Apollos. Some say, I'm of Paul, right? And, and so Paul says, this is crazy. Is Christ divided? Forget all this. Look to Jesus is what he's saying, right? Ultimately there. But he goes on to say this to these petty little people arguing about who they were baptized by and what, you know, who, who they were taught under, and we're better because our teacher's smarter than you, blah, blah, blah. But look what Paul finally says to him in verse 14. I thank God that I baptized none of you <laughs> except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I didn't, I, oh, oh, by the way, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. But other than that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. So Paul and I relate very well. <laughs> you know, forgetting names and, and situations and things, that's okay. I want to say something here, though. I do believe that the Holy Spirit has providentially put these things in here for a reason. And that is to show us that Paul was not totally discounting baptism in these verses. He was not totally reducing them to nothingness. He baptized people because it was important. So, so that's there. I want to understand that. But he's prioritizing some things here. And he does it in the next verse. 
For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. You see that? There's a huge distinction being made here. It would be crazy if baptism was somehow necessary or efficacious in our salvation. If baptism was somehow necessary to our faith, we had to believe, but we had to also be baptized in order for that baptism to somehow contribute to my being counted righteous before God. If that was true, then it would be ludicrous for Paul to say, I thank God that I baptized none of you, wouldn't it? In essence, Paul would be saying there, I'm glad I didn't give you everything you need to know in order to truly go to heaven or to be saved. That's what he would be saying, correct? Because of the distinction he makes, we understand very well what it is that Paul believes and knows makes a person right with God. And what is the power of God for salvation? It is the gospel. And we've already set that up. What is the gospel? It is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It's the work of Christ on our behalf. And so Paul says, I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you guys, for Christ didn't send me to baptize. That wasn't my main priority. It is, a, it is important, so I, I did baptize, but that's not why Christ sent me. He sent me to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest, look at this, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. These are all words Paul's already used, right? Gospel, power, salvation. He says this, he, he equates the cross there. When he says, I am called to preach the gospel, and I'm not going to preach that gospel with eloquent words, lest what? Lest the cross of Christ or the gospel, they're synonymous, folks. The cross of Christ and the gospel are synonymous, Paul says, because if we don't preach the cross, then we empty the gospel of his power. There is no power without the cross. So Paul's emphasis here, without a question, is the work of Christ. That's what saves us. That's the power of God for salvation. That's the gospel, and he separates it from baptism, and there's no argument here. Now, I've already, I hope, given, but I'm going to give it again. Uh, don't sit there and say, now, wow, that's great, man, because I don't want to get wet anyway. I'm glad that it's faith alone. I'm glad that I can just trust Jesus. I don't have to ever do anything else or, or follow anything else or obey God in any other way. No, we, we have to obey. <laughs> faith alone does not exempt us from obedience. Faith alone is how we are counted righteous, how we are saved and forgiven. And if we are truly saved and forgiven of our sins and counted righteous by God, we will have a changed heart that now wants to obey God. And one of those things that we see, we saw it in the Old Testament and now we see it in the New, is that God gives a sign, an outward sign of that inward change that happens through faith. Something that points to that, something that preaches about that, something that gives us hope toward that, and that is baptism for us. So baptism is still nothing to be slighted. As a matter of fact, the baptism is a thing where we say, Lord, I, I have received faith. I received grace. I've received justification by you. And the sign and the seal you give me to confirm that is this picture, this type, this symbol of baptism. Now, let me just say this. 
I want to conclude it in a different way here. Because we can talk about these things. That's what we're here for, right? That's what elders are here for. That's what we're here to talk to you about. I understand that I can't counsel, although I think the pulpit ministry is probably the, one of the predominant ways of counseling in the church because we're preaching God's word and there's no greater counsel. But we also have to understand that we can't answer every question in one sermon or we'd be here a long time. <laughs> so I want to bring these truths up to us and I, I, I want to encourage somebody. If, if somebody is here and you've you understand this concept that I am justified by faith and I have repented of my sins and I am resting squarely in the work of Christ and him alone. And I have been justified by God's grace. But you've not yet followed Christ in baptism. I encourage you to obey him and receive his seal and sign that reminds us and preaches to others what saves us. It preaches and speaks of the cross, points people to that promise that God has given us to save us through Christ. So I encourage you to do that. If you want to talk more about that, the elders are here. But I want to conclude this way. I, I think it's important that we see verses like this, that we dive into the book of, of Romans like this and all of the Bible as believers. For a foundational truth, it is vital, folks, not just for understanding justification. It, it's not just vital to understand how God makes me right with himself, that he does this through his son and nothing I can do. But it's also good for us to understand the assurance that we have in Christ. Many Christians battle with assurance. And, and we're not talking about a fluffy false assurance here that says, oh, you followed the plan and now you have this and you're guaranteed that and, and do whatever you want now. We are talking about an assurance in Christ that is founded upon the truth of God's word and many Christians struggle with this. And I want to give, if you are genuinely saved by the grace of God, resting in his righteousness alone, then we have reason to hope and hope greatly and not fear. Think about this. Because what this doctrine Paul lays out here is, is vital. We are not made right with God based on any performance of our own. But solely, by the performance of Christ on our behalf. That is so vital that we understand that. Why? That is by faith in Christ alone. Why is that vital? Think about this. You, the ungodly, have been justified before God by faith in Christ, apart from your works. Okay? Now look at this. Therefore, God's love for you comes from within himself, not from anything you have done. Does that make sense? Since God justifies the ungodly on the merits of Christ alone, therefore his love for us comes from his own heart for us, not from our love for him or anything that we've done. Let's expand this. God's love for you comes from within himself, not anything you do. Therefore, that means that you did nothing to make God love you. His love for and acceptance of you is based solely on the perfect righteousness and work of Christ. And since you did nothing to make God love you, that means there's nothing you could do to ever make God stop loving you. There is the point. This is the point of salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. It means that we've done nothing in our efforts to make God love us. He loves us based on the merits and perfection of Christ. Therefore, there's nothing we could ever do to make God stop loving us. 
Do you see that assurance? Do you see that strong confidence? I mean, because there's nothing that God could ever discover about you that he doesn't already know about you. This is where we have to understand the sovereignty of God is where we get our assurance. We rest in the promise of one who cannot fail. We rest in the promise of one who knows us better than we know ourselves. We rest in the promise of one who knew us before we ever lived in order to even perform one good work to try to please him. He already loved us and chose us in him, in Christ. That's a lot. There's a whole other sermon. <laughs> but man, this is our hope, folks. This is, this is where we get so pressured by ourselves and the enemy comes and attacks us. You're not good enough, man. You're not doing enough. You haven't done this. You haven't done that. This is the hope of glory in us. It's Christ. Christ is the hope of glory in us. Apart from him, we have no hope. In him, we are indestructibly secure in the grace of God. That's the good news. That's the hope that I want to leave us with this morning. That these doctrines bring us. This is why we need to know these things. I'm going to close with Charles Spurgeon. Here's, here's what he says concerning this. God has a master mind. He arranged everything in his gigantic intellect long before he did it. And once having settled it, he never alters it. This shall be done, saith he, and the iron hand of destiny marks it down, and it is brought to pass. This is my purpose, and it stands, nor can earth or hell alter it. Here it is. If God hath loved me once, then he will love me forever. That's our hope in the gospel. Let's pray. Our Father, in a time of doubt and anxiety and fear in a world that's constantly changing, we are brought back by your grace to your promises that never fail. Calls us to be faithful, to rest in them. We thank you for your word that tells us that we are justified by faith in the perfect work of Christ and that you love us, not based on anything we do, but from the steadfastness of your love that will never end. Give us grace to rest in that and therefore boldness to live recklessly in this world, proclaiming that truth, knowing that we are indestructible in your grace. We pray all these things in Christ's name.